Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Conquer the Gauntlet Pro and Strength and Speed owner, Evan Preparis. I'm flying solo for this episode. Now, I had promised to record this episode a couple of weeks ago. Things kind of got busy. I got caught up, and here we are several weeks after you asked questions, still with no answers, and I realized some of the answers you or the questions you may have asked may no longer be relevant because relevant, some of you may have passed that specific event, but... Uh, they're going to be good for other listeners, and you can apply them for future races. And before we get into the Q&A portion of this episode, this episode is brought to you by Dry Robe. If you don't have a Dry Robe for OCR, I would definitely pick one up. They are awesome. The inside is super soft. The outside is waterproof. There's nothing better than putting on a Dry Robe before a race and staying warm, especially if it's raining out. You know, while everyone else is getting soaked, you're just standing there completely warm, completely dry. It is awesome. I used it recently for Toughest Mudder UK or Toughest Mudder or Europe's Toughest Mudder, and it was raining beforehand, so I was dry all the way up until the very start of the race. Then afterwards, I went back out to my car, basically stripped down completely naked underneath the dry robe, put on some UFO sandals, got in the car, and drove home uh, with the dry robe covering me appropriately on the drive home. On top of that, we brought my daughter to the race, and we actually put her in the stroller and put a second dry robe over her to keep her warm and keep her dry during the entire event while my wife pit crewed for both me and my sleeping daughter over the eight-hour toughest event. Finally, before we get into the Q&A portion, if you haven't signed up for a Conquer the Gauntlet team event, Make sure you head over and do that. Uh, They're holding two team events this year, one in Tulsa, one in Oklahoma City. Each event has a cap of 20 teams. So if you don't get on that quick, you are going to miss the boat completely. And it is a very unique format. It's unlike anything else you've ever seen in OCR. If you want to hear all the details of that, head back and listen to the Randy Lackey episode of this podcast where she goes into depth on some of the different events they have. Some cool stuff like your team has to deadlift a heavy bar while one person crosses the slack line multiple times or there's some problem solving stuff mixed in there too the, definitely a great episode The some of the Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team guys and girls won it last year and Strength and Speeds came in second so see if you can beat them or just come out there's going to be an elite wave with cash prizes and there's also just going to be a regular wave uh, if you're just going out there to have a good time I will not be at the OKC one but I will be at the Tulsa one doing my Endure the Gauntlet, which we'll talk about a little bit later on the podcast. All right, so let's get into the questions. So starting off with Ray Michael, he asked, I'm getting prepped for a 24-hour Enduro. What are your suggestions on layering of clothes and wetsuits? And he also has a follow-up question. As a second question, workout ideas for learning to OCR in a wetsuit. So we'll start off with the first part. What are suggestions of layering clothes and wetsuits? So before I answer this question, I'd like to caveat it with, People are always looking for a material solution to stay warm when the best solution I can give you is to run harder or run faster and generate your own body heat. Nothing's going to keep you as warm as moving and generating your own heat. I think too often people look for the material solution to fix their problem 
when they should be looking towards, you know, again, generating your own body heat. And then the other big thing is mental toughness, right? So with the appropriate amount of mental toughness applied to the situation, you can overcome a lot of different things. Um, so let's assume that your mental toughness is on point, And then let's also assume that you're trying to generate your own heat or maybe it's late in the race where you're reduced to a walk and you can no longer generate a lot of heat to keep yourself warm. So with layering of clothes, a couple things I do. First, I recommend if it's warm enough is to go shirtless or wearing as little clothes as possible. This is especially because on the first couple of laps, most people are moving at a pretty good pace. And again, you're generating a lot of heat. So I'd rather be shirtless without a piece of cloth on me that's going to be wet. A lot of people like putting on shirts or, you know, long sleeve pants or long, long pants, long shirts, which gets wet. And then as soon as you get out of the water, it should, you just have this wet piece of clothing on you that's sucking the heat out of you, even when you're not um, wet. Or rather, in water, I meant to say. Now, Wesley Kerr and I used this approach, uh, World's Toughest Motor 2017, when we came in second as Team Merrill. We were running shirtless almost till mm, into the evening. So when other people had already switched into wetsuits, we were still shirtless. Again, because we hit the water, you'd get cold, you'd get out, and the air would actually dry you in it later while people who were wearing long sleeves and wetsuits were wet and thus continuing to suck their body heat away. So assuming it's cold enough where I can't go shirtless, my next layer is the Neptune Performance shirt. So Neptune Performance, moisture-wicking shirt, repels water, and has little pockets for heat pads. Those heat pads are the chemical hand warmers. They go into a waterproof pouch, and they generate heat and kind of keeps it at at your core, keep you warm. You know, with the way the shirt's designed, it actually, you most likely will not overheat. I've never experienced overheating in it because the extra heat will just get dissipated away as as you run along. Now, if it's too cold for that, I go immediately to a neoprene top. Personally, I like frog skins. I just used it actually for the first time uh, this past weekend at Toughest Mudder UK. It's got a essentially neoprene top. It's pretty thin, and it's got this fleece lining, which is going to keep you warm throughout the event. The kind of the awesome thing about it is it, it fits snugly. I got a medium, which is what I wear in most clothes. I got a medium top. It fits snugly, still allowed me to move, but provided a neoprene top. I actually didn't even remember I was wearing neoprene for most of the race because because that top was so flexible. It really feels like any other kind of synthetic compression shirt you'd wear. It's just made of neoprene, and thus it's going to keep you a little bit warmer, and it's going to protect your elbows and stuff as you crawl under obstacles throughout the race. After frog skins, you know, my next layer would be a shorty wetsuit which I would probably remove the frog skins first before putting on the shorty wetsuit. And then if it keeps getting colder or I'm still cold, I'm going to take off the shorty wetsuit and put on a full wetsuit. Now for all these, I wear spandex for all my race. So basically hammer nutrition, try compression or shorts or marina sport compression. That way I don't actually have to change clothes in between outfit changes. I basically just put it on over, over the layer. The exception is I will take off a shirt if I have one on because I'd rather be completely dry at the start of the lap than to have a wet shirt on underneath my neoprene top. Now, in between all these different outfit changes, there's also, I also try to use a modular approach, right? So in addition to having like my core outfit, I do things like 
wear wool hats or synthetic hats or a balaclava or kind of face mask to keep my head warm. I'll also have a couple different pairs of gloves. I use, now I use Blegmitz, another great OCR specific training tool. They're made of neoprene. It allows you to take your hand in and out of the glove very easily, keeps your hands warm. Uh, I also sell those off my website, teamstrengthspeed.com. So check those out. Those are great. They're selling out fast, though. I'm not sure. I think we only have like one or two sizes of each left. Supposed to get another shipment in coming up soon, but I don't have a confirmation date on when those actually arrive from Australia. And I think the core of this question is, you know, trying to stay warm. So with the accessories, there's a lot of things you can do. So I'm not going to change my socks out every lap because that's a lot of wasted time. But you can change your hat or gloves out every lap. So having multiple sets of some of these things is a great idea. And that allows you, as you walk through the pit, you essentially hand them the old wet clothing, grab some new dry ones, and then continue along your race. And on top of that, a lot of the obstacles you can actually get through without getting your head wet. So when possible, I keep my hat. And sometimes I wear a buff also to keep my neck and top of my head warm. I try to keep those out of the water as much as possible. If I do have to go full submersion in something, a lot of times I'll shove them down to the front of my wetsuit and that kind of compresses a little bit and then as I get out of the water, I'll wring it out and you know put it back on my head to keep myself warm. And that's kind of a quick crash course down and dirty on some of the techniques I use to keep warm. If you want the full explanation with all the details and all the different tips and techniques, Mud Run Guide's Ultra OCR Bible, my newest book, is also available off my website. I don't mean to be turning this into a constant plug for you to visit my website and buy stuff, but that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, both Strength and Speed's Guide to Elite Obstacle Course Racing and Mud Run Guide's Ultra OCR Bible. is because a lot of times people ask me questions, and I want to give them the com- most complete answer possible. You know, and if you're, if, you're, if you're sending me messages on Facebook or, you know, I'm answering questions on the podcast, sometimes I don't feel like I get to go into the depth that I really want to, but on the book... I sat down and essentially spilled all my knowledge on ultra OCR, how to stay warm, all these kind of types of questions that people frequently ask me. That being said, if you've already purchased my book, or both of them, one or the other, depending on uh, which, which topic we're talking about, and you still have questions, I'm always available on Facebook. Just shoot me a message, and I will get back to you. Usually, I'm pretty quick about it. Uh, As I'm recording this, I'm currently traveling through Europe, so I don't have as frequent internet access, so my normal responses are a little bit slower, and my shipping of products is a little bit slower, but normally when you buy something, it's in the mail 24 to 48 hours later on your way to you. So again, long answer is pick up the book. Short answer is I don't layer clothes. I just have several outfit changes as my primary things, and then I use modular accessories to keep myself warm, hats, gloves, balaclavas, neoprene hood, things like that. So his follow-up question was learning to OCR in a wetsuit. And doing OCR in a wetsuit can be tricky because it is a little bit restrictive. So you want to find one that fits tightly, but not so tight it becomes impossible to move your arms or is cutting off circulation. That's one of the real things I really like about frog skins. Uh, it's a thinner neoprene. And like I said, it feels like you're wearing spandex. I wrote a review on them on Motoring Guide. If you want to go back and check it out, I, it'll give you all the, the details. But big fan of frog skins. As far as doing OCR in the full wetsuit, 
So some obstacles are actually going to be easier, right? So water crossings will get easier because that a wetsuit will actually add some buoyancy. On top of that, the thick neoprene when you're going under low crawls, that's like a little layer of cushion. So it's like almost like wearing knee pads and elbow pads going through low crawls or any sort of crawling obstacles. If you're going through tunnels uh, like Toughest Mudder has, sometimes the, the wetsuit actually gives you better traction. So you can actually crawl through the tunnel a little bit easier. But I assume this question is directed at grip-specific type obstacles because that's usually where people start having trouble. Is You're wearing this wetsuit, it adds a couple extra pounds to you, which initially may not be a big deal, but when you're 8 hours or 12 hours or 16 hours into an event and your grip is shot, it certainly becomes a big deal and makes things a lot harder. So my answer for this, I feel like it's kind of be a, a little bit of a cop-out, but one... You want to make sure that you've at least done some OCR or some training in your wetsuit beforehand. Now, I don't recommend going out for a wetsuit run every day. I think that's a bad idea. I think you're going to waste your time and you're going to overheat. But doing a couple of obstacles, rig-type obstacles in a wetsuit just to make sure you have that functionality is a good idea. So basically, you know, specific preparation for specific uh, races. The cop-out answer I'm going to give is make yourself stronger overall. So like I said, a wetsuit adds a couple of pounds. So one of the things you want to make sure in your OCR training is it's progressive. So as you get better, the training is going to get harder, which is going to make you adapt more and your muscles, your, your grip strength, everything grow a little bit stronger. Now you can keep building bigger obstacles in your garage or you know keep trying harder obstacles at your gym, but eventually you're going to hit a point where you can't build a bigger obstacle or you run out of room and that's where things like weight vests come into play so while I don't recommend going out for a 20 mile run in your weight vest I do recommend slowly adding weight so start with like five pounds in your weight vest you know I'm practicing working on some rig type stuff or going over walls for a little bit and then as you get better you know increase that weight but increase it slowly so you know add one pound don't go from five to twenty to forty that's going to be how you get injured. And the last thing I'll touch on is just, again, mental strength, mental belief. So if you're put on the wetsuit and all you can think about is how much it's going to degrade your performance, it will come to fruition. Your performance will definitely get worse. If you're, going to, if you're put on your wetsuit and you're not really thinking about how it affects your performance or that it's going to make you worse at obstacles, then you'll probably do a little bit better than you were if you were thinking negative thoughts. Cool, I think we covered that topic pretty in-depth. That went on a lot longer than I was planning on. Let's move on to a new question. So Jared Renier, who we've had on this podcast before, he's a KCOCR, KCOCR member and a personal trainer, also a sponsor of the Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team, his company, JREN Fitness, asked, what's the worst approach to in-season training? Well, I don't really have, like, the worst approach, but I will say a common mistake I see a lot of people do is over-racing slash over-training. So they... They stack up all these races in a row, and they don't take rest periods between. They don't do a build, and they don't do a taper to maximize their performance. Now, I realize as I'm saying that, if you look at my race schedule, it often looks like I am ignoring my own advice. And to a certain extent, I am. However, my races are prioritized A, B, and C races. The A's, I take a long taper, so maybe two weeks, maybe even three. The B's a shorter taper, so maybe a week to a week and a half taper. 
And then the C races, a lot of times I will train through or just take one or two rest days beforehand and go about my normal activities. So hopefully that kind of gets at the core of the question. Lucas Fonensteel, another former member, a former member of the Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team, asks, why is a personal trainer a good idea? Personal trainer is a good idea because he's going to take an objective look at your training, take a look at your weaknesses, and actually program for you what you need to improve. A lot of times, you know, myself included, we end up focusing on the things we're good at. People like to practice things that they're good at because it makes them feel good, creates this perpetual cycle of good feelings and improvement and training and stuff like that. But what you really need to do is practice all the stuff you're bad at because that's going to make you better at the things you're bad at and it's going to lift your OCR game overall. Now, trainers going to have, assuming you pick the right trainer, is going to have the knowledge and objective view to look at your training, adjust it, and help you get ready to perform your best on race day. Obviously, the downside of that is it costs money. So a good trainer is going to be expensive, and he's going to be he's going to be talking to you on a weekly or maybe even daily basis, adjusting your plan for how you're performing, and specifically writing plans targeting your specific goals. Now, if you don't want to pay that much money, you're going to try to get, you're going to end up going with a different program, maybe something um, like Yancey Camp, a popular program for OCR athletes, where someone like Yancey is writing a program for a specific athlete. And then everyone else is kind of copying that program and adjusting it to their own fitness levels. That's going to be a little bit cheaper uh, as long as the athlete you're lined up with is aligned up with your goals. You're going to get some good training out of that. Uh, but it's going to be less specific for you and for your specific race schedule. And it's it definitely will not, unless you're doing the same races as the athlete you're following, it's not going to count for things like tapering before a race. Uh, like we talked about with the worst approach to in-season training. cheap, And then the cheapest way to go about it is what I did for most of my fitness career is I, I read a lot of books, I write my own plans, and I learn from hard lessons and a lot of trial and error. Now, if you're looking for quick results, I don't recommend this because you'll often fail at times, but I do think in the long term... I'm a better athlete and a better trainer because of it, because I've tested out a lot of different things. I've trained for a lot of different sports. I've tapered. I've done multiple sports at the same time or tried to. And it's allowed me to accumulate the knowledge that allowed me to write my two books. So, yeah. Uh, next one is a question by Justin Lund, member of the Strength and Speed team. Why are there so many damn internet trainers and how to decide who are the fake ones and who's the real deal? And Jared also asked the question, what should I look for in a personal trainer? What questions should I ask? So I'm going to try to answer both of those simultaneously. In general, when looking for a personal trainer, I would look for two things. One is qualification and two is experience. Qualification comes in some sort of formal certification. Now, the personal trainer industry, if you've looked into it at all or tried to get your own certification or considered your own certification, you'll soon find out there is a 100 different certifications and pretty much anyone can start a company and make up a certification. I can make up the strength and speed certification and start certifying people and charging them to take a class. Not to ding on Spartan, but Spartan made the SGX, 
which I actually think is a very good business move. Um, so they essentially created their own trainer program, right? But there was no governing body saying, Spartan, you now have the authority to endow people with this certification that says you're a Spartan trainer. It's just, it's just another company saying, here's a certification, here's, here's a certificate that says you went through an accredited course according to Spartan. So you're going to want to look for some sort of formal certification. Now, formal certification doesn't mean everything. I think personally I learned a lot mostly from experience, and then afterwards I had accumulated a lot of that experience. I took the next step and just got a, a formal certification. So when I would talk to people or write articles, I would have some initials and some actual formalized thing to put next to my name so people at least had an idea that I, I knew somewhat what I was talking about. And the one I went with was National Strength and Conditioning Association Certified Personal Trainer. So NSCA. Now, after doing some research, I went with that one because from what I could tell, that was one of the harder ones to get. Uh, it's not just an online thing. You have to study on your own, and then you actually go to a testing center uh, where it's not open book. You know, you're not sitting in your house. You're actually at a testing center, and you have to answer the questions to get that certification. It was a fairly hard test. I remember walking out thinking, not that I, I definitely didn't get 100%, and I don't think I failed, but I probably got somewhere in the middle because some of those questions, some of those questions were real hard, and some of them were, some of them were softballs. But definitely required some studying to actually get it. So I went with that one, like I said, because because from what I could tell, it was a hard, one of the harder ones to get. And then on top of that, some of the guys that train some of the special operations people in the military, they have the same certification as their personal trainer certification. So NSCA, CPT. So I use that as a benchmark to go for that specific program. Now those guys that train the personal train that train the special operations dudes also have degrees in kinesthesiology. So they have another, you know, basically an undergraduate degree and some of them have master's degrees also focused that are fitness focused so that's not just the certification they have they have they have a much larger wealth of knowledge but i would also list that under you know qualifications so if you're looking at a personal trainer and he's got a kinesthesiology undergrad degree or he's going for a master's degree or he has a master's degree on something fitness related you know plus a formal certification those are all those are all great attributes to look for in a personal trainer it's also going to show he has the follow through to start something and finish it and get the accreditation required. Now there are, like I said, there are plenty other personal trainer certifications. So if you're working with a trainer who doesn't have NSCA, don't immediately be like, all right, well, I, I got to find someone with NSCA. Again, that's just one piece. You just want to make sure he has some or her has some sort of qualification instead of just, you know, I've been reading a lot of muscle and fitness magazines and watching Dr. Oz. The second thing I would look for is experience, and I would dro drop experience into two subcategories. One is personal experience, and the other one is experience training other athletes. Now, for personal experience, I like having, or I think you should have a trainer that has at least done your sport or something similar to your sport, so they have a, an understanding of what it requires to be an athlete. You know, whether they're at the top level or mid-level or low level, as long as they understand some of the basic requirements and what it feels like to actually do that sport, I think, I think, I think that's good. 
if they're an elite level athlete in a different sport, I think that's also good because I think a lot of the, just like this podcast is predicated on a lot of the lessons you learn from other sports and tapering and peaking and adjusting and working on weaknesses, you can take and cross over into something like OCR. So you can take those lessons learned from other sports and apply them as a trainer when training your clients. I think they also understand the mental aspect. So just because something works in a lab and is scientifically, you know, quote unquote, the best way to do something, if the if it drains you mentally, it may not be the best uh, way to get to those results. Uh, for example, if you paid attention when Nike was doing their sub two trial, where they were trying to get a bunch of runners to run under two hours for the marathon, and they were basically using the the fastest shoes, the fastest clothing, the fl- a flat track. They were trying to use the they were trying to use everything to their advantage. Some of the stuff they suggested the athletes wear, like this piece of clothing is supposed to make you, you know, 0.01 seconds faster per mile or whatever whatever it was. When they gave them to the athletes and they tried them on, they were like, well, I don't like this. So it's it's uncomfortable to me, so it's slowing me down. So I think someone who's, a, who's an athlete who's experienced something similar will have a better understanding of things like that. If you want the full story on the sub-2 attempt and how it turned out, there's a great book I just finished called Endure. Not surprisingly, it's about endurance, but the thing I really loved about it was besides they, they focus on all sorts of different aspects of endurance, including ultra endurance, including you know stuff beyond ultra endurance, which I would call like trekking, right? So things like walking across large portions of Antarctica or climbing Mount Everest, stuff where it's a very, very low intensity, but it is multiple days. Um, versus something like ultra, stuff like ultra OCR, right, which is typically like 8 to 24 hours. Anyway, the book Endure, check it out. It's got a lot of science in it. It talks about the sub-2 attempt. I actually read it after I wrote my uh, ultra OCR Bible, and one of the things that I liked even more about it was it took a lot of the statements I made in my ultra OCR Bible, and it backed them up with science, which was awesome to hear. Um, from some pla- from something I'd never uh, seen or read before. So if you're a sciencey guy and want the science behind Motor and Guide's Ultra OCR Bible, the book's called Endure. Let me pull up the name of the author real quick. Uh, the author is uh, Alex Hutchison. It's Endure Mind Body and the was it Mind Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. That's the full book title. So personal experience is also going to matter with the sport. So I think I have a pretty good base of knowledge for endurance sports, but if you ask me to train a 100-meter 100 100-meter 100 runner, so someone doing a 100-meter dash, I would not feel comfortable like I have the qualifications to train that person. So despite the fact that I, I do running as a large portion of my training, despite the fact that I have a certification, despite that I have a lot of experience doing endurance sports and training and all that stuff, the 100-meter dash for me would be too specific where I don't feel like I could write a good training plan for someone. Second part of experience is experience training other athletes. So just because you're a great athlete yourself doesn't necessarily mean you're a great trainer. That trainers have a lot more to do than just you know operate a machine that's going to make someone better. 
if your personality is conflicting with the person you're training, you're not going to be a very good trainer for them. And I think people that have a lot of experience working with others and training people and understanding the, the demands they may be go- that ha- they may have going on with their life and how to adjust training schedules to fit that sp- person's specific lifestyle and also understanding that you know if that person likes doing a certain types of exercises, they're probably going to put more effort into those specific exercises to get better. So you know you got to find that balance between working on your weaknesses and also accommodating the person's personal preferences to maximize results. So kind of continuing on, for Jared, what should I look for in a personal trainer? One, qualifications. Two, experience on the personal level, and then experience training others. And what questions should I ask? I would focus my questions towards those kind of two topics or three if you count the subtopics on what experience and what qualifications they have. On top of that, I would also just read up on whatever sport you're training for so you have a general idea of what would be kind of off-the-wall bad training advice so you can identify it when it comes up. You don't have to be an expert yourself, but you should have some idea that you know the body responds to stress, and if you, if you, you need to keep increasing stress so the body responds, but you also need to take time to have down weeks and tapering before major events so your body actually adjusts to all that training you put in so you can maximize performance on event or race day. Brenna Calvert, my co-host, wants to know who is your favorite CTG teammate and why, and then started laughing. I'll say this about my Conquer the Gauntlet teammates. I don't think I have a specific favorite one. Sorry, Brenna. But what I like about it is they each bring something a little bit different to the table, and they each, again, make me focus on my own weaknesses. So, you know, for the males, I'm I'm definitely the ultra runner or the ultra OCR of athlete of the group. But I still like showing up to CTGs because even those those guys can't run as far as me on the team, they'll show up and they'll burn me down on a four-mile course. And that makes me work on my speed a lot more. On top of that, guys like Nathan are great at obstacles, and that makes me work on my obstacle proficiency. You know, Bryce is a family man on top of being a great short course CTG-specific athlete. So that makes me work on my CTG and is also a good, you know, good role model. And same thing with the ladies. If I'm taking an objective look at the team, our ladies are better than the men, and they bring some awesome stuff to the table. Christina is the ultra female of the team. You have Amy Padgett, who, again, she's done well in some ultras. Only female to stand on the podium of individual on the individual podium of both OCR World Championships and World's Toughest Mudder. Also been on Ninja Warrior a bunch of times. You know, Brent has been on Broken Skull. All that stuff, all inspirational. They all bring a different thing to the team. And on top of that, they're a great group of people. Lots of fun to hang out with. So I like every I like I like all my teammates. I like they each that they each bring something different. And I like that it makes me work harder. Now you don't have to be on a pro team or be sponsored to get the same benefits. You know, whether you find your own local group like KCOCR, Lone Star Spartans. Mid-America Obstacle Course Racers, New England Spartans, whatever. If you find your own little local training group, you can kind of look to people individually for inspiration to make you better. Piggybacking off that, again, Jared Rainier asked, my favorite athlete ever and currently, I don't have one specific athlete that's quote-unquote my favorite. What I do 
do, though, is take a specific athlete and look up to specific attributes of that athlete and then work on improving those, kind of like mimic them. So if I had to pick a favorite runner, it would be Meb Kaflesky, winner, last American winner of the New York City and the Boston Marathon, which both huge, also a silver medalist. So, I mean, just an amazing runner. And not always the fastest guy, but he perseveres in some tough conditions. If we're going with bodybuilding, because I used to be a natural bodybuilder, I don't have a natural bodybuilder I look up to because they are most of them are below the radar of you know magazines and uh, any sort of coverage. So it would be Jay Cutler, the four times Mr. Olympia. Met him in person a couple times. Seemed like a really good guy. You know, from as much basically as much as you can get from meeting someone for a couple of minutes. Uh, but one of the things I really liked about him is, you know, he won the Olympia for, Olympia for two years, lost it for a year, and then came back and won it two more years in a row, which no one had ever done before. Kind of a big deal. You know, basically gets knocked off the throne and claws his way back to the top, which good to see instead of just rolling over and giving up. I'm also a big fan of uh, from him on the business side. He set up his own website jcutler.com and sells all this merchandise and a lot of my ideas I I pulled from him specifically one of the things he said on one of his DVDs was if you're going to invest invest in yourself and that's what I've been doing over the last couple years in obstacle course racing and with strength and speed and you know I would definitely say it takes a couple of years to pay off and you need a lot of work and a lot of uh, fitness results to get it to pay off but um, it, it has over multiple different things. All I'm not all going to list it here, but you know, between I'll say this: just the trip I took to Lebanon last year alone was worth it. If that's the only uh, perk I got out of all the work I've done for OCR and strength and speed, if that's the only thing that ever happened. It would be 100% worth it. Um, that's not the only perk I've ever received, but uh, just to give you an example. Uh, you also may be thinking, well, how can I like a bodybuilder? Because they, obviously they're noto- notorious for drug use, right? Human growth hormone, testosterone, all that stuff, diuretics, all sorts of uh, fat-cutting stuff, all, all sorts of crazy stuff, right? I'll say with bodybuilding, it's not against the rules. So they're all on an even playing field, kind of. I mean, they're destroying their bodies on some on some level. But they're all breaking the rules equally. Well, I guess it's not a rule, so they're they're not breaking the rules. They're staying within the rules of this, that specific sport, even though it is, you know, bad for your body. I would say in the long run. I did write an article on strength and speed once. Can you be a fan of bodybuilding uh, as a natural athlete? So if you want the full explanation, you can head over to the blog on TeamStrengthSpeed.com and kind of read through that. Other than that, growing up, I would say Bo Jackson. Again, multi-sport athlete, and who doesn't love Bo Bo Jackson growing up? And the last one I'll comment on is ultra runners Dean Carnazis. He did uh, 50 states, 50 marathons, 50 days back in 2006, uh, and I ran Boston with him that year. So I got to run with him for a bunch of it. Also a nice guy, great talking to, and if you've been paying attention... I have stolen his career model and applied it to OCR on several levels. So between the writing books and having a website and 
doing crazy ultra OCR challenges like OCR America. That is a direct, I pulled that directly from Dean Karnazes and athletes like James Lawrence, the Iron Cowboy, who did uh, 50 Ironman, 50 states, 50 days, which is pretty insane. Um, I used that as a model when I created OCR America. Obviously, you can't do 50 states, 50 ultra OCRs, 50 days, because the courses are put up and torn down, which is why I went with permanent facilities. And I went with all the permanent facilities that would let me use their site or that weren't closed and uh, came out to a week. Actually, five permanent facilities and two actual races to kind of bookend it. You know, and then on top of that, I look to those people, for, again, for specific attributes. So whether it be business or their running ability or their strength training. But, you know, as, as people, I don't necessarily look up to them because you just, again, you don't really know what type of people anyone, anyone is unless you've met and spent a lot of time with them in person. So, you know, on that, I'm looking up to someone as a person and as a role model. Obviously, my, well, I mean, I'm not obviously to you, but obvious to me, it's my father. So even though he's not a you know pro athlete or high level athlete, he is in very good shape for his age, and he did pace me for the last twenty something miles of my hundred miler. He's out there on every one of my ultra OCRs, taking care of me. Um, it's either him or my wife as my pit crew, making sure I don't uh, collapse out on the course. Since we're on the topic of ultra OCR, Alec Puckett asked, "I've never done an endurance OCR, but I'm planning on doing." ETG, Endure the Gauntlet, would you recommend them running during the day or overnight to get a better experience? Now, if you've missed some of the other podcasts, Endure the Gauntlet is my big ultra OCR event for the year, which is 48 hours of Conquer the Gauntlet Tulsa. So I'm going to start on Friday at around 11.30, going to start moving forward and run. I use that term loosely. It'll be a lot of jogging and walking until Sunday. Um, the conclusion of the event will be the team event, Conquer the Gauntlet team event on Sunday in Tulsa, which I will be on a team. I think I still need it to fill out the rest of my team, so I'll do that, and that'll be the final lap of the of the event. Now, the, ch- the event is a charity event. It's got three big purposes. One, it's raise money for the charity Folds of Honor. Folds of Honor provides scholarship money for children whose parents were killed or wounded in action. The second thing it does... Hopefully, with the some of the charity stuff we're doing for Folds of Honor, we get some media coverage out there. Supposedly, there's supposed to be some local Tulsa stations out there covering some of the event. And then on top of that, through the articles published in Mud Run Guide and Strength and Speed, you know, raise awareness for the sport of OCR. And the final reason I'm doing it is personal challenge. Right, I like finding my limits, and. Um, I've done a lot of things, and some of the limits, some limits I found, some I haven't. So I figured, um, why not make ultra OCR as twice the longest length of the uh, any other race out there? So we'll see how it goes. Uh, obviously, a large possibility for an epic disaster, but I think with the accumula- knowledge of accumulated over the years, and again, mental strength, which is going to be the most important part out there, I think I'll be able to finish. So back to Alex's question, would I recommend? Would you recommend running during the day or overnight to get a better experience? I would say running at night would give you a, I wouldn't say better, it's a different experience. Running during the day is going to be just like any other OCR you've done where you're trotting along and you can see everything clearly and you don't really get the effects of sleep deprivation very well. At night, 
you know, you can no longer see the obstacles as well. You have to rely on your headlamp. Uh, if you're sleep deprived, your mind starts doing weird things. So through some of the military training I've gone through, I've been extremely sleep deprived and you rarely hallucinate during the day. Uh, most hallucinations come at night. And it's usually random stuff like you think you see people in the woods or you think you see shapes. You know, basically trees in the woods start looking like other things. You start seeing animals that aren't really there. You start hearing noises that aren't really there. They're usually not, you know, very vivid type hallucinations we're talking here. Anyway, you'll get that, you'll get a little bit better of that experience at night, um, especially if you're sleep deprived. And then on a personal note, I think most of my support will be during the day. So if you could run at night, that would be awesome. So I have someone to talk to because also at night, people typically lose some motivation. Um, at work, we call them solar-powered rangers. So the sun typically charges people and makes people feel awake. That's, I mean, part of your, your body's natural rhythm. So at night, motivation's usually a little bit lower. So if you haven't signed up for Endure the Gauntlet, uh, head over to TeamStrengthSpeed.com, sign up for that. If you can't make it to Endure the Gauntlet, uh, please throw a couple of bucks to charity. 100% of race registrations is going to charity. So 100%. So I'm covering the cost of the race t-shirts and the medals, which will be belt buckles uh, through other means. Uh, I'm going to either use personal money or I'm going to fundraise a large portion of it, if not all of it. So if you sign up for the event, even if you can't make it or if you just want to donate money, all that stuff is going directly to the charity Folds of Honor. Um, like I said, they do scholarship money for children whose parents are wounded or killed in action. And as a military service member and as uh, someone who has a young daughter, I can't even imagine uh, having to leave my family and leaving them to fend for themselves for the rest of their lives. You know, I think those children who've lost parents in service of our country for military service shouldn't have to worry about should have to worry about as few things as possible for the rest of their lives because they've already experienced something so terrible um, that at such a young age that you know you have to deal with that for the rest of your lives. It's absolutely terrible. So that's why I'm a big fan of this charity over some other ones that focus on stuff, um, let's say like mental health or something like that, specifically for military veterans. I like Folds of Honor because it's focused on children and kind of the, the families that have been affected by someone who's given the ultimate sacrifice. I've spent a lot of time overseas. I've made some sacrifices for this country, but that is nothing compared to, you know, my college roommate who died in April of 2007. He did not leave any... Uh, the only person he left behind was, well, his family he grew up with and his wife, who was a widow at like 23 or something like that. Uh, she was still very young, not something she would have to go through, but... She's also an adult, um, so I, you know, she can deal with that a little better than, let's say, a, a seven-year-old or a three-year-old or a ten-year-old could deal with something like that. So, sorry if I'm bumming you out a little bit. Let's get back to the fitness-related questions. William Shell asks, which OCR race series or race that you haven't done is at the top of your list to try and why? For this one, I'm going to answer it a couple different ways. For Short Course International... I'm going to go with Toughest. Uh, there's a series based in Europe. I think it's Sweden. Someone's probably yelling at me because I said the wrong country. It's called Toughest that has three different lanes. 
on other obstacles. So they have like a hard lane where if you do it, you basically you can keep running. They have an intermediate lane, which is if you do that lane, there's like a low crawl afterwards to slow you down. And then if you do the easy lane, there's like a longer penalty loop or something like that. So I've heard very good things about that obstacle series. They put out some great videos online. So if I was doing a short course, that's what I want to do. For international OCO, ultra OCR, I just learned about a race, a 24-hour team race that's in, I'm not even sure what country it's in. Um, it was The day I was sending my book to the publisher, I found out about it, so it's actually in my ultra OCR Bible. But hopefully, I'm going to hit up that team 24-hour race, hopefully with Wesley Kerr, hopefully as Team Merrill sometime in 2019 or later. And then for a series inside the U.S. for short course, I'm going to go with Indian Mud Run. The, you know, Ohio has a lot of great small local race series. Indian Mud Run is something I've been trying to get to for the last two years, and it always just lines up really poorly. Um, you know, with Ultra OCR being my focus, it's always right after or right at the same time as another major Ultra OCR. I think this year it lines up shortly after a toughest or maybe the same weekend as a toughest mutter and also maybe the weekend or the weekend after right right around the same time as enduro 24 so um which is the the reason i didn't go to indian mud run last year was due to i did true grid enduro 24 in australia for u.s based ultra ocr fit challenge up in the northeast connecticut rhode island area we've had sarah longoni on this podcast before talking about it uh, Rob McCoy looks like he does a really good job out there, both with obstacle designs and then on top of that, the prizes. So the more laps you do, you get a larger wooden block. And then this past year, they also introduced belt buckles, which is something I'm a big fan of. Belt buckles have been a staple in the ultra running community. It's usually given out only for 100 milers, but I think um, for ultra OCR, I think giving out belt buckles is appropriate. So another got two more questions from William Shell, and then we'll call it a day because I'm starting to run low on time. What is the number one thing you you see OCR athletes not doing that they should? And then what is the number one thing you see OCR athletes doing that they should stop doing? Again, not going to answer this one 100% directly, but going to get at the answer I think they're I think Will's looking for. So I often see OCR athletes focused aggressively on grip endurance, like I'm just going to hang from this cylindrical bar for as long as I can repeatedly and that's like my that's my big grip strength training you know people are people are like i got another, i got two minutes on this bar where with, i wasn't doing anything i was just kind of hanging there like a dead fish now i do think some dead hang training is good uh to work on some of that grip endurance but from the impression i get and this could be me just reading social media poorly is people are overly focused on grip endurance on a normal cylindrical bar I think people don't spend enough time working on rig grips that are of different shapes and sizes and put your hands into different positions, such as like grabbing a, you know, like an atomic climbing hold ball or a nunchuck type position, which are harder to hold on to. I think people spend too much time practicing on just a regular bar. Now, if you're still falling off monkey bars, absolutely keep practicing on, on cylindrical bars. But if you haven't fallen off monkey bars in a while, I would start using atomic climbing holds, synergy sports type products, and using those when you're doing your dead hand training, when you're doing your pull-ups, when you're at the gym, if you're doing a lat pull-down, you know, use that instead. 
I use it for things like I use a nunchuck grip for you know pulling machine bicep curls. I use it for tricep extensions. I use them for everything, right? So I have stopped using normal bars for pretty much anything. Even when I do pull-ups, I'll hang two atomic grips or two Synergy Sports sticks from the bar and use those for pull-ups. The only time I switch back to a regular bar is when I'm doing, um, I grab my Harbinger weight belt, weight belt and put some weight on and do, do pull-ups with a you know, 25 or maybe even a 45 plate hanging off my waist. And again, that I'm focusing on, if, if you look at OCR, you know, how long does it take you to cross a rig? If the answer is longer than a minute, I'm going to say you're doing it inefficiently and you need to work on your transitions and your smoothness and get to crossing it faster. So you want to keep most of your training at around that level. Obviously, you go over it sometimes to kind of spur some of that endurance, but you also want to go under it a lot of the times and use, you know, you want to be using near max grip strength uh, for, you know, 20 to 45 seconds, which is about how long it's going to take you to do most obstacles minus a couple of things like, you know, bucket carry or sandbag carry or, I mean, a wall is essentially one pull of your body. So I would say focus more on grip strength over grip endurance because I think people get them confused and when they fall off a rig you know whether it's it's if it, again if you're falling off from a normal horizontal pole then you know keep working on just grabbing those normal horizontal poles but um if it's anything if it's anything else start changing up your grips start, start working on those other aspects of your grip strength and that also goes with grippers we've talked about on this podcast before but if you're using those grippers and you're just like i did 100 reps today in a row then use a heavier gripper, right? Like if it's taking you, if you're doing the grip, if you're squeezing the gripper for more than a minute, you know, get a heavier gripper, do low, do low reps and increase that max strength. Because when you're hanging from your hands and you're 130 to 200 pounds, you're near max strength. So you should be practicing near max grip strength maneuvers. And kind of the second part I'll add is, you know, I'll, a lot of us got into OCR because we're tired of traditional weight or traditional training where it's just running or it's just strength training. And I'll add that I think there's a lot of value in occasionally breaking them up and occasionally putting them together. So obviously for sports specificity, we're running and doing obstacles simultaneously. So you do want to do some of that in practice. Personally, I do it once a week to get that transition down of you know blood rushing from your hands back to your legs back to your hands stuff like that but i also spend a lot of time doing just strength training and just endurance training i think if you don't separate them out ever i think you are not maximizing your ability for those strength gains or maximizing your ability for those endurance gains so if you're the type of person who never combines them i would combine them you know, once or twice a week. If you're the type of person who never separates them, again, I would separate them two or more times a week to work on those attributes. Because if you're always tired from running when you're trying to do obstacles, you're not going to be as good at them. And if you're always tired from obstacles when you're trying to run, you're not going to stress your cardiovascular system as well as it should. Um, you look at other sports, again, steal their example, triathletes, do swim, bike, run. And most days they're just swimming, just biking, or just running. 
And then, you know, maybe twice a week they do a brick workout where they do two of the sports back-to-back. Now, I know what you're thinking, well, that may not be a good example because they only have to do one sport at a time during the triathlon, and then they completely switch over to the new sport. Okay. Let's go with something else like baseball. You know, baseball players will spend sit there and just swing the bat and practice batting over and over again. So you should practice just like a baseball player, as in just doing some strength training, you know, so you're, or just practicing rig, rig work for a day because, you know, that's what you're trying to improve. Then the baseball player is going to work on his running speed separately, right? So he's, you know, practicing running the bases or whatever running drills baseball players do. You know, then occasionally in games or in practices, he's going to put it together where he actually swings the bat and then runs um, from base to base. So working on them separately to, to build up those skills. And then that way, when you put them together, they're both at a higher level. All right, last one from Will. And then we're going to cut the podcast off. Um, I think that answers all the questions I took pictures of. Um, yep. How to know when you're overtraining, how to progress, how to pro- progress training to improve optimally but avoid overtraining. Overtraining, tricky topic. There's not one right answer. Overtraining for one person is going to be a little bit different from someone else. Um, if you look at, again, if you look, I'm using myself as an example. If I use, look at my race schedule and try to make someone else do that, uh, I think you'd quickly find them overtrained. So I think a lot of it's going to be mental and how you personally feel. Now, there's, you can pick up a couple of books or, or check it out. There's some heart rate stuff where, you know, if your heart rate is X beats per minute above normal at, you know, when you wake up in the morning, then that's a sign you're overtraining course the problem with that is you need to be monitoring your heart rate pretty much all the time which for me is i think is a lot of work and i typically will i've tried to do it in the past and then i end up forgetting or my heart rate monitor dies or i have to change the batteries and then i i end up i end up essentially not doing it so i just use my how i mentally feel and how i'm performing um as a gauge of overtraining you know, if I'm starting to feel run down or having trouble, a lot of trouble getting up in the morning, I, I view that as a sign. A lot of times, though, you can fix that problem by going to bed earlier. If you're sleeping eight hours a night, it's a lot easier to get up in the morning to run 10 miles versus if you're sleeping six hours or less. I find those mornings are brutal to get up and requires a whole new level of mental strength. So definitely try sleeping some more. I mean, Other than that, I recommend kind of monitoring your performance so you know if you're running a certain pace and then the next week you're having a much harder time keeping up at that pace you need to look at not just that specific workout but your you know the the couple days surrounding it so if you did a long run the day before maybe you're just tired from that long run the day before so it's not actually overtraining it's just fatigue from a previous workout or if you have a lot of personal stuff going on in your life you know some workouts may feel harder so don't really have a great answer on this besides monitor how you feel. If you start losing a lot of interest in training, you may want to, I would say that's probably a sign of overtraining uh, as long as you take a look at the, what's going on in the rest of your life. And the other thing is, again, getting back to tapering, make sure you taper before race day. A lot of times, you know, specifically with some of my endurance training, my paces end up getting, will start getting worse for a while because I'm, I keep increasing the volume or increasing the amount of training I'm doing, but then as I taper down to race day, 
I'm running at paces during the race that I couldn't even sustain for a little bit in training. So um, just something you're going to have to feel out. If we go back to the beginning of the podcast, you know, having a personal trainer and keeping in touch with him and communicating with him and ensuring that he knows what he's talking about should help prevent some of that because he can monitor your training and adjust your training to make sure you're not overtraining. But yeah, I think that uh, I think that's going to about wrap it up for today. Hopefully I got all the answers that we were looking for. By the time you're listening to this, I should be on my way back uh, from Europe. I'm still currently overseas as I record this. My three-year-old is watching, I think, Sonic the Hedgehog. And my wife is quietly sitting in the room waiting for me to stop talking so she can get back to doing packing and stuff like that. So we'll call it for now. Uh, Thanks again for listening. Again, I apologize for all the delays. Actually, I'm sorry. There's one more. Jonathan Fletcher, I'm I'm so sorry. I almost forgot you. So um, one of my UK friends, what's best to do? What best to do in the week if you have three long-distance races over three weekends? So ideally, you don't do three long-distance races over three weekends. That's uh, bad scheduling, or it's you trying to push the limits of your body. Um, if you're looking to maximize performance at each of those three races, again, spreading them out over several months or weeks is going to be more beneficial. That way you can build and taper between each one. I'll also say long is a subjective term. So for me, I would consider long eight-hour events and longer. Some people might consider them like a, a tougher mutter, so a 10-mile 10, 10 event. Some people might consider you know, a Conquer the Gauntlet, a four-mile event, three long events back-to-back. So it's, it's going to vary per person, largely with your training history and training experience, race history, race experience. Those things are going to affect what's actually long for you. Uh, let's go to the far end of the spectrum and assume you're doing something really stupid like toughest mutter. Hey, let's say you're doing like three toughest mutters in a, three weeks in a row, uh, which I don't even think is possible because of the way they're scheduled. But let's three ultra OCRs, you know, back to back to back. So you're not going to be able to gain, e- even for any of these really races three weeks in a row, you're not going to be able to gain much fitness because you're going to be recovering from that specific event and then getting ready for the next one. So our goal in those three weeks is not about gaining fitness. It's about not losing too much fitness and recovering enough to maximize performance of the next race. So for me personally, if I was going to do something like that, I would actually probably shorten my taper a little bit for the first event. So maybe taper for a week and a half as opposed to maybe like a full three weeks for that first event. Um, And then try to use – try to basically ride that fitness wave over the next – three events so i'd taper into that first event let's say a week and a half do the race if it's let's say it's an eight hour toughest event really that's going to take a large toll on my body i'm just going to try to recover over the next week race again and try to recover again over the next week and race one more time and then make sure i have some several weeks off after that so i can recover and then do a proper build up with a proper taper before my next event or series of events so after the toughest mutter, you'd probably take Sunday completely off, Monday completely off, so two days minimum. Um, Tuesday, I'd probably even take that completely off. Wednesday, Tuesday, I would say Tuesday is completely off or some something light, like uh, 30 minutes of cycling, something like that, just to get the blood moving around. Depending on what your next race is, 
Wednesday, I might do something, Wednesday or Thursday, I might do something easy, maybe a couple mile run just to loosen up the legs. And then I would take two more rest days before my next event and repeat. So I'd say minimum two rest days after the event, minimum of two rest days before your next event. And then for those other essentially two days in between there, light exercise, um, which is going to vary person to person. Light exercise might be walking for 20 minutes. It might be going for a three-mile run. It might be going for a five-mile run. I know I've done toughest mutters and then tried to do bounce back and do a short race immediately a week after. For those, I like to do a workout where on Wednesday I'll run a mile warm-up, do a um, two one-mile repeats with um, like two minutes rest in between and then a mile cool down. So, or one to two mile warm up. So four to five miles total, one to two mile warm up, two one mile repeats, one mile cool down. And the reason I do that is I'm just, all I want to do is get my nervous system charged up. So the last memory I have going into Saturday's race is a very fast leg turnover. Um, And a lot of it, I think it's less physical and more mental boost for me because it, it lets me know that I haven't destroyed my body completely over the weekend, and I can still run fast if I need to. All right, uh, I talked for too long. I'm going to go. My wife's nodding at me. My daughter's giving me dirty looks. No, she's not. She's three. All right, thanks again. I will see all of you uh, at the next Toughest event, Toughest Michigan. Talk to you later.